Um, I was reflecting on our journey. This is week 25 of Spark, which is kind of kind of crazy. I love it when you woohoo. That's pretty awesome. That's nice. Uh, if you could do that like every 60 seconds, that would be <laughs> that would be great. It <laughs> really make me feel like. And then Jesus said, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, something along those lines. Um, so I think it's appropriate. Um, I try to be diligent in leadership, which means understanding concepts, principles, ideas, philosophies, theories of what leadership is. And um, one of the people that I've been reading is a guy by the name of Peter Drucker, and I believe this is his quote. He says, the first job of a leader is to define reality. Um, the last job um, and the very last job is to say thank you. And it's like the bookends of what it is that you're supposed to do. So I just wanted to take a moment to say to you, all of you, thank you for being a part of this journey. It's been a lot of fun. And I still get up every Sunday afternoon at 3 <laughs> looking forward to coming to church. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's absolutely wonderful. Woohoo! Exactly. That's, that's how it should be. So thank you. Um, I... I know, I hope I don't belabor this too much, but I want to thank Chris and Eric again for um, participating in the Faith and Technology Seminar last week, which I just thought was fantastic. Um, we, I had so much fun with that. The videos are now online, um, two portions of it. We couldn't give you the full portion, but two portions of it are up online. So if you missed it last week, you're able to check that out. We are in the middle of a Jesus series. So this is installment number four. And if you've missed any of them, I highly encourage you to check out the questions that we've been asking, starting with, who do you say that I am? And then, who's your daddy? And how's the water? Um, so some wonderful questions that hopefully provoke us into thinking about, well, who is this Jesus guy? And what kind of relationship do we have with him? And what does that tell us about us? And so today we're going to start with um, Matthew chapter 4. We're going to continue the series, and we're going to take a look at Jesus' temptation in the desert, in the wilderness. And this begins to invoke all sorts of weird things, if, especially if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, or you're not quite sure about the Bible and spirituality and all that kind of stuff, because the devil is there, and angels are there, and, you know, Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's hungry. So there's all sorts of stuff that goes on right there. Um, and there's some depth of, um, some insights that I have gleaned from this passage, and I'd like to share with you. So for now, let's Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Let's start with reading the passage, and then we'll get to uh, some of the thoughts that I have to share with you. I think it illuminates something pretty brilliant about who Jesus is, kind of the history of spirituality and the history of the faith, um, starting all, all way back for a while and informing us today. So Matthew chapter 4, and if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, go to the middle and take a right a couple pages, and you should run into the book of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. We'll conclude our reading there. I have a confession to make. Those of you who have maybe been believers or followers of Jesus for a long time, you have absorbed hundreds, yea, if not thousands of sermons over your life intending church. Oh yeah, see, there's the woohoo. Thousands of sermons, many, many sermons. And every now and then a sermon gets stuck. And when you come to a passage that maybe is familiar, there's a sermon that just kind of pops into your head. It's like, oh, I remember when such and such person or so-and-so gave a message on this. And so when we were getting ready to get to this particular passage, I have that confession that there's a sermon in my head that I just cannot get out of my head every time I come to this particular passage. And it was given in 1993 by a guy by the name of Edward Victor Hill, also known as E.V. Hill. Uh, he's recently passed away. Um, but it was to a large gathering of men called Promise Keepers. For those of you who may remember that gathering many, many years ago, geez, two decades ago now, large gatherings of men would gather together and hear wonderful speakers and be challenges for what it means to become a man of God. And so um, I have that in my head, and I just think it's fair for you to have it in your head. So I found the sermon online. It was amazing because of, you know, wonderful technology. You know, see last week. Um, footnote, see last week. Um, and so let's, I, I've clipped out about a three-minute clip, and I'd love for you to just kind of get the feel and the sense for what's been going on in my head. Jesus uh -oh. said, uh -oh. devil, What's going on? it is written. It is written. That's what he said. It's written. In other words, Jesus went to the book of Deuteronomy and came out with scripture. And every time the devil opened his mouth, the Jesus threw scripture in his mouth. He came back at him again and he said, devil, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He hit him over and over and over with the scripture. And guess what happened? The devil ran. And guess what you can do? beginning tonight. You don't have to take it. You don't have to take his mess. You don't have to take his stuff. Hit him. It is written. When the devil comes up and says, how do you know you've been saved? You are not saved. Yes, I am saved. Hit him. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shall be saved. Hit him, hit him, hit him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hit him.
condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Hit him. How are you going to make it? My God shall supply my every need. How are you going to go through? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not walk. It's written. It's written. It's written. It's in the book. It's in the Bible. All you have to do is take out your Bible and say, where are you, devil? Come on, devil. Let's get it on. Let's get it on. Hit him. Hit him. Hit him. Let's get it on. He's defeated. <laughs> and then the video goes on. And it's amazing to think about a stadium full of testosterone-filled human beings yelling, hit him, hit him, hit him. <laughs> but it was, it's just a beautiful thing. There's a lot of things that I love about that clip. Number one, it's nostalgic for me because this is, you know, in the time where I'm learning and growing and discovering about who Jesus is and who I am in relationship. And it was one of the, at the very beginning of my walk um, with Jesus and trying to figure out uh, all of that journey, um, you start realizing that there can be this passionate commitment. There's this excitement. There's this sense of, uh, of empowerment by the Spirit that life can be different as you follow this Jesus. And the other thing that I love about that particular clip is there's a sense of identity that comes with knowing what these passages are. The sense of knowing who you are because of these passages passages, because of these scriptures, because of this Bible. There's a sense of understanding the asking the question of who am I really? And so that, to me, formulates a very foundation for the things that I've gleaned even recently about this particular passage in Matthew chapter 4. So we're going to start with the question, because this Jesus series is a series of questions. What is your greatest temptation? What is your greatest temptation? Now, as soon as I say the word temptation, what immediately comes to mind? Some of you are grinning already because there are things that have to do with this thing that we call sin. This, and the apple is this symbol, although it comes from the Middle Ages. It doesn't really come from the Bible. It comes from the Middle Ages where it's this symbol of things that we are perhaps not supposed to partake in. Things like food or, or things like sex, things like sales, things like Nordstrom's, things like iPhones. And then there's these temptations that I think we all have, like Homer, I love the little, you know, the angel and the devil. There's the temptation sometimes, I just want to be bad. Just want to do something a little, little mischievous. Um, we all have that, perhaps, growing up. Remember, we remember that as kids. And so, I have this sense that when we say, what is your greatest temptation, or when we get to the passages like temptation, the things that immediately flood into our, our minds are the things that shame us, or the things that cause us to be um, embarrassed about the things that we really, are, our secret pleasures, our, our, our cravings, our impulses, the th impulses, our impulses, uh, the urges, the compulsions, the things that are forbidden, the things that are naughty. And oftentimes, and especially in Christian circles, and in religious circles, the idea of moral behavior and upright moral standing becomes so 
uh, prominent in place and so prominent in our thinking that whenever we think about sin, whenever we think about temptation, whenever we think about right and wrong, we think about that morality. Now, that morality is very, very important, but it elevates itself sometimes in our conscience that if I were to ask you, what is your greatest temptation? Most likely something like one of these would come to mind. For, for me, it's Chinese food. Anything ethnic that I love to just indulge in. Some people, it's shopping, and, and, and I wish Tina was here because I was going to give her a hard time about Nordstrom's because she calls Nordstrom the mothership. Uh, the digital devices, I was, we were hanging out with somebody, and, and they were already talking about the next iPhone, this temptation. I, I have, to, have to have it. I need it. I'm, I am incomplete without it. And so these are the things that I think about, that I think I, we think about when it comes to temptation. But if you read this passage again in Matthew chapter 4, the temptations of Jesus, I was struck with the idea, these are not moral issues. Jesus wasn't tempted by sex in Matthew chapter 4. He's not tempted by shopping or spending money or acquiring money. He's not tempted by all those things. He's tempted by things that you and I would think would be, in some ways, necessary for life. First temptation, turn these stones into bread. Now, this is after having fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Now, you're telling me that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, this is a temptation? I mean, we call it a temptation. But I don't know about you. I fast 40 minutes and I'm already, uh, I need something. So stones to bread doesn't make sense in that particular. He's tempted to show off the power of the angels. Um, throw yourself down and the angels will, will catch you. And then he's tempted with the kingdoms to own, like an expression of owning all these powers. But, you know, it's within the context that he already is the son of God. So these things that are happening in the temptations in Matthew chapter 4, in my mind, just don't seem to be about the things that we might instantly think of when we think of temptation. These are not moral issues, per se. I'm going to suggest to you these are issues at the core central identity of who Jesus is and his relationship with God. So when you think about temptation, or when we think about temptations, if we only think about moral issues, I'm going to suggest to us, as we learn more about who Jesus is, as we learn to follow him, and as we learn about the lessons that he's teaching us, from the temptations here, maybe these temptations have more to do with what we actually think about ourselves, our core identities, our purpose, our value, our relationship with God, and who we think God is more than, did I do a dirty, nasty, little evil deed? Did I spend too much? Did I take that little extra chocolate that I shouldn't have taken? Rather than those temptations, let's think a little bit deeper. And especially since the one who is antagonizing the temptation is the devil himself. Now, I don't know what kind of picture or image that you think of when you see the devil. We often, like if you Google the word devil, you know, it's very, very scary stuff. Uh, this was my favorite image that came up. Apparently, according to the Brick Testament, the devil is Casper the Friendly Ghost. Um, but I just love that picture. But the devil, or Satan in this particular sense, throughout biblical history, 
both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, has this sense of the definition being adversary or accuser or tempter or a deceitful one. Now, it is true in other passages in the Bible where there's temptations to do those immoral things, but the fundamental basis of what or who Satan is is accusation and adversarial opposition to who you are and your relationship with God. That is the fundamental basis. So the idea that there's this little devil running around getting you to do bad things may be missing the fullness of what the concept or the idea of the devil is. That is to accuse you, to be against you. And I read one definition back in, the, in a Jewish source where one of the definitions of the devil is to actually accuse you before God. It's like to complain to God about you, which is fascinating because I see a lot of Christians doing that sometimes too, where we complain about other people to God. You know what, God, those people over there. And so I thought that was interesting. Now, one of the things to help us understand this idea is recognize that as you have been hanging out with Spark for a little while, or even if this is your first time, we understand passages in fullness of context. And so we're going to take a little bit of a look at that and hopefully come up with some things that might be helpful. It is noticed, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, that there are these common themes and common parallels. So for example, he goes out into the wilderness. He's taken up to a high mountain by the devil. He's there for 40 days and for 40 nights. And there's other themes all throughout Matthew that kind of give this clue. Wait a second, I think we've seen this story before. So if you take a look at the story of Moses and the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt in the Old Testament from the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, you start to see these common parallels. And so theologians and scholars and, and Bible teachers start to go, wait a second, there's something radical going up. Moses goes up onto a mountain and comes down with the Ten Commandments, the teaching for all of Israel. Jesus goes up on a mountain and delivers a sermon, which we call a Sermon on the Mount. It's a very similar parallel. Moses is in Egypt, and when he is born, essentially Pharaoh decides we're going to get rid of all the boys, and so he gives this command to slaughter all of the children. Jesus, when he is born, what does Herod do? He says, slaughter all of the children. So you start to see these parallels. So there's something going on, something rich and dynamic. So it's like, I've seen this story before, and as I'm retelling this story through the person of Jesus, maybe there's something really beautiful and wonderful there. So let's take a look at this. Very, very briefly and very much on the surface, there's a lot deeper things that you can go into after this course. Let's take a look at Jesus. He is tempted by bread, and he states a quote there from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. The next temptation is the angels throw yourself down, and the angels will um, carry you up. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16, and then he's tempted with kingdoms from, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 13. So even in the quotation of these passages, he's invoking, hey, remember this story? Remember what happened back then? And if you take a look at the Israelites, what were they tempted by? If you take a look at Numbers chapter 11, they have all of this, what is it, called manna. And God tells the people, God gave you this manna so that you will understand that you are not to live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Jesus, in invoking Deuteronomy chapter 6, remembers the story in the Exodus where the Israelites are out of water and Moses is commissioned to go and speak to the rock. He strikes it instead and water flows from the rock. And so in talking about Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16, Jesus is invoking that memory there at Meribah, which is a word that means to test, by the way. And then if you remember in Exodus chapter 32, the Israelites get to a mountain. Moses goes up on the mountain, but the Israelites are back down on the mountain. They're going, where is this guy? Who is he? We don't know where he went because he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And within that time, while he's up there, the Israelites are saying, okay, well, shoot. There goes our leader. Let's do something about it. Aaron, help us out. So Aaron gathers all of the jewelry, throws it into some sort of pot, and out pops a cow. Look at that. Fascinating how that happens. And so the temptation or the challenge with Israel back in Exodus was a challenge of leadership. And rather than following God and following who God had ordained for them to follow, they decided that they were going to create a whole new idol for them to follow. What is all of this about? I'm going to suggest to you one perspective. That the food and the bread is really not just about being hungry, but bread in the Israelite community and tradition is this symbol of provision. Who provides for you? Who is the one that ultimately creates the provisions for you to sustain life? Food is not just a symbol of nutrients, but it's a symbol of the very essence of sustenance in this world. And so the Israelites, by saying, where is this food and where is this coming from? It's not an invocation of, I don't like it anymore. It's really an invocation of, is God really going to provide for us? That's the question that's being asked. Is he really, really going to provide? And with the devil, with Jesus, devil's basically saying, look, I don't know if God's going to provide. You might as well provide for yourself. And so God definitely does provide bread. He does provide sustenance. But it is to recognize that all sustenance, anything that comes, comes from God. It's not to say, yeah, I did this. Come over to my house. Let me show you what I made. Come over to my house. Let me show you what I grew in my garden. Come over to my house and let me show you what I have created and provided for myself. No, all things that we have, every single thing that we have comes from the mouth and the word of God. This is not a question on whether you like bread or don't like bread. The question is, where does this come from? And who do you acknowledge as the provider? When it comes to power, water is a symbol of life, vitality. It's a symbol of thriving in the ancient world as well, in this world. And what is the thriving that happens with Jesus and the, and the temptation and the, and, the, and the devil there? This is an expression of Thriving doesn't come from God. Thriving comes because I've got power. So this is not a question of whether or not the angels can actually help Jesus. This is a question of, am I going to express and use my power in this world to show off for the world? This is like, this is like a show. Let me show you what I can do. Let me show you what I can accomplish. Let me show you what, how great and wonderful I am. And then ultimately, lastly, this is an issue 
of worship. By the way, that word worship, you might have heard us say this before, is not just a a word that means to sing or to praise. It's a word that means to work or to serve. Who ultimately are you working for? Are you serving? Who ultimately are you laying down your life for? So these temptations I'm suggesting to you and to myself as I've been studying and thinking and pondering over this is not about doing all the bad things in life. These temptations are, who am I really? Am I tempted? Am I tested to hang on to my life? Am I tempted and tested to say, yeah, all the things that I am doing and accomplishing come from me? Am I tempted to say that all the things that I value, all the things that are important to think, me, all the things that I provide come from me? Maybe that right there might be some of our greatest temptations. So <clears throat> the things to note. He goes up on a mountain, which is very similar to the ancient Israelites, and maybe the temptation here, as Jesus is he- heads up to the mountain and the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world, maybe the temptation is to possess more of this world and ultimately to idolize the things that we possess or the things that we create or the things that we own. This is a temptation of worship. This is a temptation of value. This is a temptation of service that I'm ultimately going to serve me. I'm ultimately going to be self-serving to myself rather than be serving to God. Second, commanding of the angels. If you'll note, he says the corner of the temple. Now, the reason why that's important is because in Psalm 91, there's a passage there that the devil quotes. He says, he will command his angels concerning you. He will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In that same passage, he says, for God commands the angels to guard you in all their ways, and he will cover you in the shadow of his wings, which is the same word in Hebrew for corner. So the word for corner of the temple invokes kind of that Um, memory of Psalm 91. And he takes him up there, throw yourself down, and maybe the temptation here is the use and the abuse of power. The other possible way of thinking about this is maybe you're tempted to say, you know what, God's really not creator of me, but I am the creator of him, and I can manipulate him, I can use him, I can transform him, I can make him come to my every beck and call. I can throw in that quarter in that slot machine and out comes beautiful, dynamic deity at my command. And then the last temptation, stones to bread. Um, Note, bread. (laughs) Bread is something that some commentators have noticed doesn't come out of the ground. It comes from what you do with what comes out of the ground. So it's an indication of your work. Again, your provisions, your activity, your manipulation of this world. And maybe the temptation here is to abandon the provider in a time of need to acknowledge, or to acknowledge the self as the giver of life. This isn't God who has given life. This is me who has given it. One story that came, comes to mind regarding this particular temptation, because I think the stones to bread temptation is one of the foundational ones here. I do a decent amount of counseling with kids as well as with adults, and in the last several years, I've been heartbroken regarding the number of people that have come and said things like, I've been following God my entire life. I've been trying to be like Jesus. I've been faithful. I've been reading scriptures. I've been participating in all these spiritual disciplines, etc. 
And now bad things are happening, whether it's divorce or whether it's cancer or whether it's abuse or whether it's just fill in the blank of all these things. And there was this expectation somehow that because I was doing these things, God was somehow supposed to make sure that he takes care of all these things, which is, you know, illuminating of, the, of, the, of these temptations even in that comment there. The usual pattern that follows is this. Well, if this is who God is, or if this is how this works, then forget God. I'm about ready to give up on him. I'm about ready to just simply abandon who he is, and I'm abandoning my commitment to him in this time of desperation and in this time of need. And just recently, and I don't know how you might take this comment, but just recently I've started been asking the question to people who have been struggling and wrestling with this. First of all, number one, I totally understand. When you're in a time of need or a time of desperation or a time where things are not going the way they they want, there is a natural impulse to just forget provision. Forget the one who claims to give you life. Forget the one who claims to provide for you. Forget the one who claims to support and encourage you. So I understand that, but let me ask you this question. As you go through this challenge and this temptation, this difficulty, as you go through this, it seems to me that you have two options. You could go through this with God or you could go through this without God. And as I've posed that question to a few people, not everybody necessarily responds in the same way, but as I pose that question to a few people, some have responded in the sense that, I never thought about it in that particular way. Yes, you're going to go through pain and suffering and, and torment and really difficult times and challenging things. Do you want to go through that without this God who loves, cares, supports, provides, loves, encourages? Or do you want to go through it with him? It is almost as if this God that you have been holding on to for your safety, security, all those things is the very God that you need to hold on to even more during times like this. Because what's worse than going through something painful and tragic is going through something painful and tragic alone. And so the temptation here, I think, deep at the root of these temptations of identity is to abandon the one who has been the provider, is to abandon the one who has given life and sustenance, is to abandon him. And the temptation is to recognize, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to be the one that provides. And the very essence of who I am is going to be found in the fact that I can do this myself. The very essence of who I am is going to be found in the power that I can express or the status that I hold or the things that I can accomplish. That, I suggest, may be our greatest temptation. Our greatest temptations are not those moral issues. Our greatest temptations are to say, we're the ones. And like E.V. Hill, hit him, hit him. Jesus comes to each and every one of these temptations and says, there is a solution and there is an antidote. There's the word of God. We do not live by ourselves. We do not 
own our life and our sustenance. We live by the very power and the very essence of the word of God. We will not test the Lord. We will trust him. Even through difficulty and challenge, we will trust. We will hang on and believe. And we refuse to let go. We refuse to let go of ultimately worshiping and valuing who God is, and not to create false idols, and not to find our identities in ourselves and in who we are. That, I suggest, is perhaps one of our greatest temptations. Last thought. The word in the Greek for temptation and for test is almost identical. In fact, they have similar cognates, similar roots. And there's two different ways to think about a test, or two different ways to think about a temptation. The first is this. The first way to think about a test is that the burden of the test results is on the subject that is being tested. It is the person that has to cram. I, we see this all the time in school, of course. Did I do enough work? Did I do enough study? Did I put in enough? And that's one way to look at the test, which is very similar to that temptation. It's all about me and what I can provide and what I can do. And, and this causes anxiety. And I hear, especially in faith circles, that tempting, temptations and tests are really challenging for us because it's like, why would God test me? What is that? That seems mean and manipulative. And why would God do that? Well, this may be because we have this perception of what a test or a temptation is. But there's a second way to look at this. Has anybody ever taken a test drive? Has anybody ever gotten in a high-performance vehicle and pushed that vehicle to its limits? This is not a test to see if the car has done its homework. This is not a test to see if the car has put itself together. This is a test to show off the manufacturer. This is a test that shows off the creator. This is a test to show off the designer. This is a test where the creator, the designer, lets it loose and says, watch my beautiful creation live in this world. And so as we come to this temptation, you recognize that that phrase that the devil uses is not if you are the son of God, it's since you are the son of God. I suggest to you that if you are going through a trial or a temptation or a test, it is not just that God is oppressing you, trying to get your goat. It's not this unfair, what is he doing? I don't get it. Maybe what God is doing and what we can allow God to do is for him to show off and reveal to us and to the world what he truly has created in us. Us. It is to show off what is actually in us. And I will tell you, I've heard over and over and over and over again people coming to something difficult, coming to something challenging, coming to something that's testing, coming to something that they don't know if they can do or accomplish this. And they get through it and they recognize and realize, oh, there was more in me than I understood. Has anybody ever felt this way? And so, if, a little woohoo back there, it's very, very nice. If you are struggling with the temptation, if you are challenged, it's our prayer that we would recognize that the challenge and the test that 
Jesus is going through, as we learn about who he is and the inauguration and the beginning of his ministry, and as he lives into this world, that we would recognize that the test and the challenge is not just about moral issues, it's about identity issues. The ultimate temptation is to identify ourselves with the things that we possess, the things that we have created, the things that we're in charge of, the things that we own. That's the temptation. The temptation is to recognize self over who God is, which is ultimately a temptation of worship. But as you go through those temptations and as you go through those trials and as you go through those difficulties and those challenges, and they can be painful, they can be difficult, they can be irritating, they can be oh so burdensome, we can also see that maybe God is not oppressing us in the temptation. He is showing off the beauty of his creation that each and every one of you have because you are created in his image. Each and every one of you have intrinsically in your heart and in your soul and in your very being everything that you need to get through. And God is showing off his creation. You are a high-performance disciple. Get out there and show it off. Run it down that road. Take it around those turns and let God display, put on display for you and for the world, for the community, just how wonderful and amazing the Creator is. This is a test that shows off the brilliance and the care and the articulation of the creator and the manufacturer. I know we've had multiple conversations with many of you, and it's challenging and it's difficult. And as you embrace that you do not live by bread alone, you live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As you embrace that, I think you will see and discover that you are a high-performance disciple. You are a high-performance human being. God has created each and every one of you that way. So let's live and breathe out of that identity rather than the identity that we create of ourselves. I'll ask the team to come back up. We're closing one song. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for uh, this uh, wonderful church and uh, the time and, um, that we have together. And Lord, may we continually dive deeper into who you are and how you live and work and move and how your spirit transforms all of us. Uh, Lord, I pray that each of us would own and recognize that we are created in your image and we are high-performance disciples. And Lord, we sometimes don't know it and we are blinded by it, but God, would you reveal that to us? Would you open our eyes? And as life and challenges push us in difficult and challenging directions, God. May it reveal to us that you, the Creator, have put into us everything necessary, everything necessary to overcome all of these temptations and to live life truly to the fullest. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.